Good morning, everyone. Ah, thank you. <clears throat> My name is Rodney Holmes. Um, I'm part of the Prado slash uh, Adams community group. And today I will be reading with you all uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 25. I'll give you all a moment for those who want to follow along, and then I'll start. Okay. <clears throat> and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig, in the, in, a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything from the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And the, when evening came, they went out to, of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes, with, believes what he says will come to pass, and it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you sit, stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father will also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will last forever. Thanks, brother. Hey, it's good to be with you this morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer. Uh, if you're a guest, if you would take a minute, there's some connect cards under your seats. If you'd take a second and fill one of those out, we would love an opportunity to see how we can serve you, to see how we can connect with you, to get you plugged in to the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Rodney, who just uh, read the text in that silky smooth voice of his, would be happy to uh, get you a Bible. Uh, if you're on your phone or tablet, we use the ESV. Again, it's good to be with you. We are back in our Mark series. Um, so it was about a year ago, Kendra and I were having lunch at, at Roses on Fadri, as one does after church. Uh, and we were having lunch with this couple who had been visiting the church. And this particular couple did not have any West Texas roots. So we're just kind of chatting, getting to know each other. And I just ended with like, hey, do you have any questions for me? And the wife says, yeah, I've got one. Why plant a church in a town with so many churches? And I think that is a really valid question. I mean, statistically speaking, there are close to 200 churches in Odessa for a population that's 120,000 to 150,000, depending on what 
the price of oil is doing that day. And yet, with all of these churches, our community remains predominantly unchurched. Some statistics show that as high as 95 to 97% of the population of Odessa is unchurched, meaning that there are 95 to 97% of people in this community that either claim to be a, a Christian or claim not to be a Christian, rather, or they claim to be a Christian and they are not a, a part of any local body. And unfortunately, that's the case in a lot of Bible Belt communities. Christianity in the South of America has become somewhat assumed. Like, I was born here. I was born in this Christian home, in this Christian environment. I may have grown up even attending church sometimes. I believe in God. I can even maybe say all of the right things. I live a very moral life, especially relative to everybody else around me. I live a very moral life relative to the culture I live in. I vote the right way. And I attend church when it's convenient for my schedule. And so, church, I believe that God has called me to plant a church in this culture amongst a huge group of people that say they're Christians. But many, including many people who are at a church this morning, aren't actually following Jesus. Man, my hope and my desire is that through the ministry of Redeemer Church, is that men and women, boys and girls, would come to faith in Jesus, not simply become religious box checkers, not simply showing up and doing and saying all of the right things and still missing Jesus in the process. My hope is that people through the ministry of this church would become full, fully devoted followers of Jesus. Not just show up when it's convenient for you. Not just give, not just serve, because that's what we think we're supposed to do. No. Our hope is that you would fill the calling of God on your life to give your life away in service to Jesus. And not just be cultural Christians. That is not the heart of the gospel to just be a cultural Christian. That is actually religious fakery. I made that word up, fakery. It's like a bakery that's not real, fakery. And look, let's get serious. Focus up, man. Uh, Jesus calls all of this religious faking out in our text today. And as we walk through our text this morning, I would just really invite you to consider your relationship with Jesus. Do you really love Jesus? Do you truly love and honor and worship Jesus with your life? Or are you faking Christianity? Are you faking your love for Jesus? Are you doing all the things, all the stuff, because that's what you're supposed to be doing in order to either appease your conscience or try to appease some God that you think is out there and angry with you? Or are you trying to gain the applause of men? trying to earn the praise of others. Listen, if you're being fake in here this morning, if you're pretending in here this morning, you may not even, you may be just completely even unaware that you're even doing it. We're going to talk about that this morning too. I don't say any of this. I don't ask any of these questions to shame you or to guilt you. 
I do think it's God's grace on your life that he is being merciful in this moment to reveal himself to you. So when we pray in a second, I just ask that you would pray that God would reveal areas in your life where you are not fully devoted to him in faith and independency. Listen, God loves you. God is not angry with you. But God does want more from you than empty devotion. God wants your whole life. God wants your whole life in order to give you life and give you life abundantly. So my hope this morning is that our text today will lead us to faith and dependency in Jesus. That it will lead you to deep prayer in Jesus. And it will lead you to, as a person who has been forgiven greatly, it will lead you to forgiving others. If you're lacking in one or more of these areas, as all of us are to some degree... I just really encourage you to consider where you may be lacking. I would just ask that you would begin praying right now that the Holy Spirit would soften your heart and that you would really examine your heart and your motives in your life, particularly in matters of faith this morning. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into this text together. Lord Jesus, we need you. We love you. Lord, I would ask that you just begin to tear down walls in our hearts and in our minds this morning, Lord, that you would show us areas where we are just going through motions and missing you in the process, Lord, and that you would be gracious to call us back to you, Lord, that you would call us to faith and repentance and dependency on you this morning, Jesus. We need you. Show us our need for you. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you just pray for yourself in this moment that the Lord would be gracious to reveal pride and idolatry and unbelief in your heart this morning. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, Mark 11, we're going to begin in verse 12. The text says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, being Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So in last week's text, we saw Jesus ride into a town, uh, into, into Jerusalem, on a colt of a donkey. And as he's headed towards Jerusalem, the crowd around him and the disciples are shouting, Hosanna, meaning like, Lord, save us now, save now. And they're celebrating because their Messiah, their Savior, the one that was promised and prophesied about, this Messiah is coming to them. They shout Hosanna, they lay palm branches on the road, which is a symbol uh, symbol of peace. In their minds, in the minds of the crowds, they're about to be delivered from their political oppression to Rome. But Jesus' mission is much broader than that. Not that he doesn't care that the Jews are oppressed politically. But before they need a political savior, they need a spiritual redeemer. He came to deliver them first from their first oppression of sin and death. So Jesus goes all the way to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he is all alone. 
And he looks around and he's grieved by what he sees, which we'll get to in a minute. But Jesus rode into this town surrounded by huge crowds, praising him and worshiping him. And just as quickly as they gathered around him, they left him. They left him. And this is a prophetic foreshadowing of what's about to come. Jesus is all alone at the temple. So he leaves Jerusalem with his disciples. They go back a couple miles to a nearby village of Bethany. And the next day, they wake up and they head back to Jerusalem. And as they are going, the text says Jesus is hungry. Why is he hungry? Because Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. So as a man, Jesus gets hungry. That's important. Jesus identifies with us in our humanity because he was, in fact, a person. And I get hungry, right? Jesus gets hungry. So they're walking, and up in the distance, they see a tree. It's a fig tree, and it says that it's in leaf, which means it's got leaves on it. So Mark makes it a point to tell us, while this fig tree has leaves all over it, it is not time for figs to be on the tree. But when you consider fig trees, if there are leaves on it, it usually means there will also be figs on it too. So it's reasonable for Jesus as God who created the fig trees to think, eh, leaves on the tree, got to be some figs on it. He rolls up on this fig tree and there's nothing on it. It's in bloom, no fruit. All, all tree, no leaves. Or I mean, all, all leaves, no fruit, whatever that expression should be. Infer as you would like. Look at Jesus' response to this fig tree. Verse 14, he says, And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. This is considered one of the most controversial moments in Jesus' earthly ministry. Based on what we've seen Jesus do in the previous ten chapters of Mark, We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him feed two separate huge crowds with bread and a few small fish. We could expect that Jesus could make this fig tree sprout figs where there were none, right? Some theologians would go as far to suggest that Jesus, in his response to the fig tree, that this response is somehow beneath Jesus to act in such a way. But don't lose sight of what's happening here. Jesus isn't isn't hangry. Jesus isn't acting like some entitled spoiled child throwing a fit in the cookie aisle of H-E-B. We've all been there. You know what I'm talking about. Everything Jesus does is calculated, it's measured, it's intentional, and it's useful for teaching and instruction for us. This is a parable And it's acted out in real time for his disciples and ultimately for us to see and behold. Jesus uses parables often as a teacher. A parable is a story used to illustrate a point or highlight a truth. So Jesus is essentially giving his followers a real-life parable by cursing this fig tree. The leaves of this fig tree promised one thing and didn't deliver on the promise it was making. One commentator says, this was a hypocritical fig tree, saying, come here, I have what you need. However, when you show up, you realize you've been deceived. It was a show with no substance. Jesus is on his way to cleanse the temple in the same way. 
Because this is what the nation of Israel had become at this point in history. This is what the temple had become at this point in history. This is what the religious leaders of the day had become. Rather than pointing people towards Jesus, rather than pointing people towards the true God, the God of their fathers, the God who promises salvation, they had become a hub of this outward religion. The leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the day, would look at the people and think, what can I get out of these people? They wouldn't look at them and say, man, these people need to be reconciled back to God. They give this picture. They give this allure of looking like they have it all together. But they are not following the God of the Bible. They look spiritual. They look godly. They look holy. But they are indeed hypocrites. They're saying they believe one thing and doing something completely the opposite. Man, let's take, a, let's take a second, let's take a pause real quick. A little brief inventory of our hearts here. Our righteousness, our righteousness is not found in ourselves. In ourselves. Our righteousness must go beyond mere externals. You can't just look holy. You can't just look holy and have a heart that's not repentant. You can't say you believe in Jesus and have the cross and the resurrection have no effect on your life. Our righteousness, Jesus says, has to exceed or surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. And if it doesn't, Jesus says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. We must admit our neediness. We must admit our brokenness before Jesus in order to get to Jesus. And without Christ... Without Jesus, we are doomed, man. So are you really trusting in Jesus? Are you really depending on Jesus? Or are you just merely trying to make yourself look like you're holy, look good enough, depending on yourself and your good works to save you? Man, I'd like this to be a word of caution for you. In this sense as well, I'd ask you to really evaluate who you are allowing to have spiritual influence over you. In the internet fad days that we're in, like we have access to any possible teaching, any possible church, anywhere. And if you're listening to these preachers that never ever open their Bible or only use the scriptures to justify statements that they're making. If you listen to preachers who make these bold claims that are contradictory to the word of God, but they do in fact tickle your ears and tell you what you think you want to hear, man, that's dangerous ground that you're on. So just really ask you to evaluate your hearts and your minds as you are living your life and, and, and what you're consuming. Let's keep going. We're going to unpack this a little more in depth in a minute, but look at what happens next. So Jesus curses the fig tree. Verse 15, it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? 
but you have made it a den of robbers. Few really important things to take note of here that we may miss if we're not careful. Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, and they went to the temple. And the text says that Jesus began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Which begs the question, what are they selling? What are they buying? People are there because it is the Passover. This is a yearly celebration where Jews from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem to make sacrifices for their sins. And all of this would take place at the temple, which is the cultural center of Judaism. For the Jewish nation, all of life revolved around what was going on at the temple. It was to be distinct, it was to be set apart, it was to be considered holy, it was erected as a place for God to dwell by the command of God. And so it was meant to be taken very seriously, especially if you were Jewish. And so Jews from all over the known world were there to make sacrifices. One church historian by the name of Josephus, thank you, uh, said that, the population of Jerusalem would increase ten times at the time of the Passover. It was expected that these pilgrims would then sacrifice animals that were pure and spotless without blemishes. And who is it that gets to determine the purity of these animals? The Jewish leaders. They had a vested interest in the money that was coming and going out of the temple because it helped maintain their lifestyle. So these pilgrims would most often just buy their animals at the temple because let's say, remember, this was the day before cars were, were invented. So you're on foot making this trip to Jerusalem. So let's say you live 45 minutes away from Jerusalem. You're on foot and you don't want to be pulling a bull or a goat or a ram or some other kind of animal that you're going to have to kill when you get there. You get there, you present your bull to the to the religious leaders, and they're like, yeah, it's not pure and spotless. So then you'd have to trek your bull 45 miles back the other direction in the desert where there is no water or food for said animal. So it was just more convenient to buy your sacrifice at the source. Are you tracking with me? So again, we have this guy named Josephus uh, who tells us that the temple would increase the cost of these animals by 16 times at the Passover. And he also says that there were 255,000 lambs sacrificed and sold during Passover at this time. And then we have these pigeons. Pigeons are what the poor people bought. Usually they were like a quarter apiece. So considering the inflation, the Passover inflation schedule, these pigeons would be like four bucks, which is a lot of money. And also, the temple had its own currency. So you would have to go in and see the money changers and exchange your foreign currency for temple currency. And there was a high fee to make these exchanges. And you basically had no choice. You either sacrifice according to the law at the temple, at the Passover, or you are disobedient to the law of God. This is the height of extortion. And this is church-sponsored extortion. And the text says Jesus isn't having it. It says that Jesus also blocked the entryway into the temple. In the Old Testament, there was a certain way in which one had to enter the temple. You had to kind of walk 
around the building and going through the front door. And Jesus blocks this thoroughfare that had become kind of a, a shortcut for people to take the easy way. I thought about this this morning. In fun dome terms, if you wanted to get to the buffet in like the holy way, you would have to walk out and walk around instead of like walking through the church space to get to the breakfast buffet. Jesus was blocking the way, and so people were having to walk around the building. But he was doing that because that's what the law said. Jesus blocks the thoroughfare because people had stopped revering the temple. There is no reverence. There is no honor. They are just purely going through the motions, bringing my sacrifice taking the easy way, getting it over with, going home. And Jesus responds in a righteous indignation, in righteous anger. Jesus is saying the temple is meant for a place of worship, a place for prayer for all the nations. That's an interesting statement. Jesus drives these people out. This term, drive out, in the original Greek is the same language used when Jesus would cast out a demon. Man, what a scene. Jesus' temple security. He's functioning as a bouncer. Either you honor God, or I will bounce you from this place. And that's exactly what he's doing. Grabbing people up by the collars of their robes and just walking them out and throwing them out into the street. It's awesome. Someone should make a movie. Jesus Christ takes the word of God, the Father, so seriously that he is willing to make this spectacle, this commotion for all the people to see. And Jesus doesn't care what they think about him because he is going to be devoted to his Father in love. Man, what God says in his word ought to be the most important thing for us if we claim to be a Christian. So is it for you? This whole scene is taking place in what is known as the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles weren't allowed. Non-Jewish people were not allowed in the inner parts of the temple. So Jesus' statement about it being a house of prayer for all the nations is going against, one more time, is going against cultural and religious expectations of him. By saying the temple, his house, the house of God, is meant to be a place for the nations, all nations, to worship him. Jesus is saying that he is not here primarily for the political deliverance of Israel, but for the spiritual redemption of all people, a people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, on the face of the earth. And yet what we're seeing in this moment is classism and racism on display in the first century Jewish church. And let's just be real honest with ourselves for a second. This kind of stuff still exists in our churches today. This can be an indictment on the church if we're not careful. This isn't a sermon on race relations, but it does warrant some conversation here. The temple of God through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit, is now a universal temple. Meaning the temple of God is the Christian. If you are a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you as a believer in Christ. You are now the temple of God. 
And the temple's original purpose and its current purpose in you is to point people to a proper understanding and a proper worship of Jesus. The temple of God is to attract people from all nations to the worship and service of God. The church of God transcends class, it transcends race, it transcends gender, it transcends geography, and it transcends political parties because of the work of Jesus on the cross. John Piper in his book Bloodlines, he says this, Over and over, Jesus shows that the people of God will no longer be defined in an ethnic way. Rather, the people he is calling to himself will be defined as producing fruit of the kingdom of God. Not color of skin, but faith in Christ is the mark of the kingdom. Man, Israel missed this. Their leaders missed this. And so many of our churches today miss this too. It was assumed by the Jews of Jesus' day that Jesus would come and cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Kick them all out. Rather, Jesus came and cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. Bring them in. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, 7 and 8 says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. Verse 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him. Besides those already gathered. Jesus' activity here is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Lord calling people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue on the face of the earth to himself. The Lord is at work redeeming a people to himself. And he cares for people regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of class, and so should his church. The Jews and their leaders had an empty religion. And Jesus said that you are not bringing people into the presence of God because you don't love people, because you don't care for people, and because you don't love me enough to follow me. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, you're done. Get out. Listen. What these last three verses show us is this. All wickedness is an abomination to God. But wickedness done in the name of Jesus is a whole other level of wickedness, and Jesus will deal with it. Historically speaking, Jesus doesn't cleanse the temple. He actually curses it. At the time of Jesus, it was still under construction, and it was finished in about 64 A.D., And this religious charade was still taking place 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, as Jesus would prophesy in Mark 13. Not only was the temple destroyed, but Jerusalem was also sacked by Rome and their ruler Nero. And Jesus' activity on this day catches the attention of the religious leaders of the day. 
Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they, Jesus and his disciples, went out of the city. So now these religious leaders, they've had enough. They've gone from annoyed to angry to now vindictive. They have decided they are going to get him. They are dead set on getting Jesus. The plan is in motion for what is about to unfold for Jesus in the next five days. Throughout our walk through Mark, we have seen them plotting against Jesus. We've seen them plotting against Jesus' life. And as it gets closer and closer to the time of the cross, they are about to act. So Jesus and his disciples leave the city. And look what happens next. The next day, verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, sweet Peter, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Remember on their way in, Jesus was hungry, and this tree, filled with its leaves, was just pretending to be a fig tree. It's just a regular tree by tree standards. So by cursing this fig tree and cursing the temple, coupled with the withering away of the tree, Jesus is predicting the downfall of the nation of Israel as the disciples and the Jews of the day know it to be. But there's more for us. We can't just stop there and be like, oh, uh, there's some immediate consequences to the words of Jesus. There are some deep things that you need to consider this morning. Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of my one of my favorites, says about this text, there are a great majority of people with some religious affiliation, with some Christian affiliation, that have leaves but bear no fruit. That is called hypocrisy. Thinking one thing about yourself and acting in complete contradiction to what you say you believe. And Jesus curses hypocrisy. Listen, Fruitlessness now, if you are not careful, leads to fruitlessness forever. Fruitlessness now, if you are not careful, leads to fruitlessness forever. Daniel Aiken says it like this. Lose your usefulness for Jesus, and, me, and he may curse you and move on. It is not he who needs us, but it is us, it is we, who desperately need him. We need him to save us. We need him to make us useful and fruitful. We need him to redeem our hearts. If we turn his church into a country club of religious hypocrisy, you will not receive blessing. You will receive his curse. His eyes are a flame of fire, and he will expose you for what you are and who you really say you are. Listen. It isn't Jesus' desire for you to perish. However, if you persist in ongoing and willful, unrepentant sin, eventually you will have to give an account for that. There is grace for you, yes, but not if you continue in sin willingly. The cross and resurrection free you to love and free you to worship and free you to serve Jesus not just to go on about your life without any concern for Christ. There is so much grace for you. And if you are a believer, Jesus is merciful to forgive you. If you're a believer, Jesus is merciful for, to forgive you when you repent and believe in him. So we have this fig tree 
And it's withered away at its root, and it's useless now. And Jesus responds to what Peter says, and it seems a little out of place. But let's talk about it. Peter sees the tree, and he remembered that Jesus had cursed it. And he says, look, Jesus. And Jesus answered them, verse 22, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. And Jesus says, hey, have faith. Listen to me carefully here. There's a real danger to feel condemned at your hypocrisy. We all have stuff we have to wrestle with at some level. We all, at some level, feel inadequate as well. Just me? Cool. Um, this is what I know. There's a cross. There's an empty tomb. Because Jesus, our Passover and sacrificial lamb, died in our place. Jesus judges hypocrisy with righteousness. Jesus extends grace to those who seek him in faith. The call to have faith in God is to trust the one who willingly died in our place. God is pleased to use you. God is pleased to use men and women who are weak enough to admit our need for him. Jesus' call to faith is a call to prayer. Prayer is a gift to the church, and we neglect it to our detriment. There is power in this sweet communion with Jesus as our intercessor and as our mediator back to God. And there is power when we intercede for one another and when we intercede for lost people. And yet we, church, do not pray with expectant hearts, and we don't pray in the power of the Holy Spirit who has given to us as a guarantee of our faith. Jesus says, pray in faith. Pray in faith and you can move mountains. Now, I want to be careful here. This gets hijacked by a lot of people, well-meaning or otherwise, uh, like trying to manipulate God maybe. But what Jesus is saying is that there is power in God who can do impossible things. And he is pleased to do impossible things when we ask him to act and move on our behalf. True believing prayer is not trying to, mani- trying to manipulate God to get him to do something for us. It's not trying to get God to do for us what we want him to do. But to pray in order that God's plans are accomplished. That God's will is accomplished as he sees fit. When we pray to God, when we cry out to God, we are expressing our need for God. And when we pray to God, in accordance with the will of God, He will act. And when we pray as believers, we do so as people who have been forgiven by Jesus through His death on the cross. Because of the forgiveness that we have been shown, we must then forgive those who have wronged us. Keep in mind something. Before you were ever sinned against in this life, you were a sinner first in need of grace. How dare we withhold grace and mercy and forgiveness to others? 
Matthew 6, 15 says, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, listen, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The church of God must be the most forgiving people. We must be the most grace-oriented people in the entire world because that's all that we have. When we don't love and forgive the way that Jesus has loved and forgiven us, we are not following the will of God for our lives. So is there somebody, we're already probably thinking about it, is there somebody you're withholding forgiveness from? Man, I want to end our time like this. Our God is a God of divine mercy. And our God is a God of divine justice. He will not tolerate sin takes it so seriously that he came to die. And he loves you so much that he came to die in your place. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we know that God delights in showing mercy. We also know that because of Jesus' death on the cross, you cannot look at the sacrifice of God to you and remain unmoved. What we see when Jesus curses the temple is that if you continue to harden your hearts, if you look at the scriptures and see what Jesus is calling you to, and it doesn't motivate you to pursue Jesus, to love Jesus more, it doesn't motivate you to connect deeply to the body of Christ, you may think you're a Christian, and you may not be. Jesus is merciful, yes, absolutely, but he will also not leave the guilty unpunished. You have to decide, is Jesus worth it? You can continue to play churchy games and check religious boxes, but if Jesus isn't your Lord, you will be cursed to eternal judgment. There is grace for you, sinner, to repent and believe, but that time for you to believe is now. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know everything. You just have to admit your neediness. You just have to admit your brokenness. You just have to admit your sinfulness to Jesus. You have to confess that you are a sinner in need of grace. Christ is either everything to you or he is nothing. There is no in-between. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ died in your place. If you're just showing up because that's what you think you're supposed to do, if you're just going through life, never considering Jesus, you really need to evaluate your heart this morning. Turn to Christ in faith. You have been free to receive grace and mercy. You have been forgiven to forgive. 